We receive packages almost every day. FedEx and UPS bring us a never-ending stream of parcels from Amazon, Walmart, Wayfair, and Wish. There were times, however, when the entire U.S. was wary of unexpected packages. For 17 years, Ted Kaczynski spread fear by sending bombs across the country. Who was he, and what drove him to such lengths? Tonight, we will explore the story of the American nightmare known as the Unabomber. Welcome to Fact and Suspicion. I'm your host, Dan, here with my co-host, Ben. And tonight, we will be discussing the Unabomber. There were several periods during Ted Kaczynski's spree of bombings when the country really lived in fear. And it wasn't constant because you know, he took breaks and stuff. Right, yeah. But it's something that really affected a lot of us, I think. I mean, I was really young at the time, but I remember vividly that sketch of him that was on all the tabloids. Like, you couldn't go into a grocery store without seeing him in his hoodie with his sunglasses on. I mean, as a child, that was, that was genuinely horrifying. I, I would agree with that. And you saw, I mean, you saw it everywhere. It wasn't just on the tabloids. It was on the news, you know, almost every night as well. Yeah, yeah. I just, I have this really vivid memory of going into grocery stores and seeing that on, on the cover of magazines. <laughs> well, I, I can understand why that would terrify you. It, I don't know. I feel like they almost drew it to be extra sinister. Yeah, it looks menacing. It really does. It does. And nowadays, I mean... I mean, nowadays, it's, it's like a meme, but back then, you know, it's very different. Oh, there wasn't anything funny about it then. No, no. But, uh, yeah, let's, so let's get into the case. Um, Theodore John Kaczynski was born May 22nd, 1942. And some would say some of his trauma started as early as nine months of age. Uh, because he was hospitalized for severe hives. Um, and that doesn't sound so bad, but at the time, you know, when they would hospitalize a kid for something like that, they were isolated. So he was a nine month old baby and he was, you know, away from any kind of contact with his family for a week. Um, now, I'm not saying that that really had a profound impact on him, but his mother claims that that changed him you know, forever. She said that he was a happy, active baby when he went to the hospital. But when he came back, he was sort of quiet and unresponsive. And he just sort of stayed quiet forever. I mean, I would imagine that could have a profound impact on a child. I mean, early childhood development is really important. I mean, you said he was nine months old at the time? He was. And without his mother's touch, without any affection or, or, or parental guidance at the time? I mean, that have to be very traumatic for a kid. Well. I guess I'm not arguing that it wasn't, but there's there's something else later that I think had more of an effect, which we'll get to. Um, but moving on from that, like I said, he was he was a quiet, shy child after that, and it turns out he was a genius. Uh, you know, Kaczynski had an IQ of 167. I mean, that's and, you know, that's that's pretty damn broad. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like, staggeringly high, actually. Like the Einstein average is a hundred top levels, right? Yeah, yeah something yeah. like that. So, you know, because of that, I feel like that sort of set him apart as well. And, you know, 
maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like anyone that has that level of IQ is, you know, not com- they're awkward. They're well, always well, awkward, they're probably right? going to feel separate for most yeah. of their lives. They it seems like people like that always have social issues. They can't interact very well. Yeah, and he had that problem, you know, all through his life. Uh, but he did. He skipped sixth grade. Right, and, that and then could after not have skips, helped his socialization either. No, it, it didn't because after that, you know, he complained that he was, you know, he was bullied by the older kids he was in class with. Right. I mean, so when, then you know, when your supposed peers are all older than you that that way. I mean, he he seemed to have had a pretty troubled childhood thus far. Yeah, well, it only gets worse because he skipped eleventh grade as well. I guess he's trying to hurry through high school to get away from you know the older kids. He skips eleventh grade as well. He goes through summer school. And he graduates at age 15. He graduated now, at 15? Yeah, he graduated high school at 15. And he was a national merit finalist as well. So he actually um, is accepted to Harvard. And he begins Harvard at age 16. Now, I can't imagine that... Kaczynski wasn't poor. His family wasn't poor. But obviously, he doesn't have the level of wealth that a lot of the kids at Harvard do. And being only 16, I think that just was going to make him even less accepted. I mean, it would have to, right? Because, I mean, even if he has the, the you know, the, the mental capacity to be in college at that point, it would be almost impossible for, impossible for him to have the, the type of emotional maturity that you would need to engage in a college atmosphere. And honestly, I'm not sure that he ever reached uh the the type of social maturity as far as socialization goes right that that he needed well i mean it but seems like he never he, really had a peer group of his of, of kids his own age no and it did this point definitely he doesn't have them right so he was separated He's, not just by the fact that he was smarter than most everyone he met but also i mean he was the, the age range he was always younger than the people around him he was. I mean, that, he couldn't have had very close relationships. I mean, what do people in college have in common with a 15 or 16-year-old, right? Very little. And especially when they're all wealthy and you're not. Yeah, that, that doesn't help either. Have a, you, know, you don't have a common background, anything. So he's but younger, even, smarter than them, and poorer than them. It was. That's and it's not a recipe for making friends, I imagine. And it's about to get worse for him, too. Because in his second year at Harvard, he ends up going through this psychological study. Now, he signed up for it, but when he signed up for it, he thought he was just going to be debating his peers. And, you know, for someone with a 167 IQ, that's probably tempting. Yeah, I imagine so. But he doesn't know this is actually a psychological study to look at the effects of stress and, you know, verbal abuse even on individuals. It uh, doesn't seem like that would be approved by any ethics committee these days, at least. Not these days. No, no, definitely not. But at the time, no one really seemed to care. Um, but so they were actively happened- abusing the, the participants? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me break down a little bit of what they did. Um, so at the beginning of the, the, the project, they have all of the student volunteers write an essay 
about their their core beliefs, you know, things that are very important to right. them. Deeply, uh, deeply held personal beliefs. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, and they turn in that essay. And then you have people that use these essays against them, basically. They they come in and they just tear apart their beliefs and, ev- and everything, you know, that they hold, you know, dear to them. They're just attacked by these people that are not their peers. These are, you know, adults. These are law students, people that know how to argue. Right. So the goal was basically to shatter their worldview and just to just to see what happened. Yeah, pretty much. Um, they they're very verbally abusive to them. Um, they try to provoke outbursts, uh, and then you know they actually record the outbursts that the students have and play them for them over and over and over just trying to stress them more. And uh, this goes on for, that is for three so years. so unethical. It is. Well, was, there's three years of it, too. He goes through it for 200 hours. But, I mean, even for that time period, that seems extreme, man. Well, it was. And there's actually a lot of speculation that this was part of the MK Ultra project. Now, I've never heard that, but, I mean, from what you've described, it doesn't seem far-fetched anyways. No, um, and, and the, they're making that connection because the project was headed by uh, Dr. Henry Murray. And during World War II, uh, Dr. Murray worked for the Office of Strategic Services. The CIA, or the uh, preface to the CIA, at least. Yeah, the precursor to the CIA. Right. So obviously he would have had those CIA connections. And I, I should explain, you know, for anyone that's listening that's not familiar with MK Ultra, this is... Uh, a project that did something very similar. It studies the effects of stress and abuse on individuals. They also use psychoactive drugs, try to alter their states, and just to see if they could break these people down, see what it did to them. I mean, you know? If I remember correctly, it wasn't a large part of the of the program to see that to the extent to which human beings could be influenced. Uh, that, that's why that they engaged. That's why they used... Uh, hallucinogens and, and other types of drugs often without their uh, often without their consent they yeah, were seeing how they could control people consent. yeah that, that was exactly what they were doing uh, and, and a lot of people think this was possibly involved with MK Ultra. so, so now, to be there's clear no, these were basically in a lot of ways mind control experiments MK Ultra, not always but often right. yes um, I've even heard and you know this is speculation and we're getting to conspiracy theory territory here but I mean, MK Ultra of, definitely existed. I mean, it did. But what I'm about to say is conspiracy theory because I've heard connections that uh, people involved with MK Ultra, you know, were involved with Jack Ruby, and they, you know, forced him to to kill Oswald, basically. Well, uh, I mean, whether they forced him to or not, that's I think we most people can agree that that's a weird murder. It is, and, and I'm just trying to let people know that and it like, was sort of the, awfully convenient, <laughs> very convenient. But I want people to that are listening to understand like the implications of MK Ultra, and that there's a lot we don't know about it. There's obviously it's a CIA project, so we'll never know everything about it, right? And you know things like that. But there's a lot of speculation, and the Professor Murray definitely had connections to the CIA. Um, another thing is that he also oversaw the uh the work of uh timothy leary not um, who, you know he 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 uh he studied the effects of psychoactive drugs on people at harvard basically 
Did he do it consensually at least? He did. He did. His was, was consensual, though. He was studying LSD. But, you know, LSD was very much a part of MKUltra as well. So. I've heard stories about people involved in, uh, I don't know if they were necessarily MKUltra projects, but they were definitely CIA-related, where people would, where they would spike each other's drinks with LSD as part of, like, ongoing experiments. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, with MKUltra, like, it was, it was never consensual, the things they were giving them. Right. Right. And we honestly don't know the extent of this project that Kaczynski was involved in at Harvard, because a lot of those documents are sealed, and and you know the public doesn't Convenient. have access to them. So I mean, th- we yeah, don't know exactly. That's definitely plausible, man. It's and it's plausible that this is you know sort of what forged the personality of the Unabomber in him, right? It could be. Though well, I'll yeah, be honest, I, I still think that that the, the traumatic events when he was a child. Probably played a large part too, yeah, just because of the age that it took place at. Yeah, and I'm not saying that it didn't, but I feel like this could have had a much, much more profound effect. Because when you have someone trying to just tear down your core beliefs, you know, once a week for three years, and I guess that makes sense because I mean, like Kaczynski went on to write quite a bit about his personal views. Yes, he did, and I mean, he was on he was bombing and killing people to get his personal views out there to the public. So, right. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that this would have had a big effect on that. I don't want to get stuck on this part of it, but you know, I think that's very important. Well, it's important. Yeah. I mean, we want to know what, uh, you know, what events in his life helped lead to, uh, you know, who he eventually became. Right. And not that any of it is necessarily, you know, uh, uh, not that we're trying to tie like a ca- make a causal relationship of any of any sort, but I mean, you know, certainly they had to have had an impact. I, I think it definitely did. Now, uh, moving on from Harvard, though, he did get his uh, BA in math from Harvard, mm-hmm. and then he enrolled at the University of Michigan in 1962. Um, now, while he was doing his graduate work at Michigan, they also gave him a teaching post, so he's getting paid a bit while he was there. And he ended up getting his uh, master's and PhD from Michigan. You know how uh, old he was, was when he got his PhD? Yeah, he got his PhD at 25. That's impressive. And uh, then, you know, at, at that point, when he got his PhD, he received a, uh, a post at Berkeley as an acting assistant professor. And he was, you know, the youngest staff member they had at UC Berkeley. Um, but th- there is one more thing before we move on to Berkeley that I do want to cover about his time at Michigan. And that's uh, while he was a grad student, uh, Kaczynski actually considered having a sex change. Um, I've never heard about that. Yeah, it. Uh, from experts reading his journals, they believe that it, it stemmed from his social issues and not being able to, you know, not being able to talk to women or you know have a relationship. So they, they don't think it was like related to like uh, gender dysphoria or anything like that. No, no, it was more of his just uh, frustration. I think uh, he went to speak to a psychiatrist about it, but while he was in the waiting room, he he just decided that he was disgusted with himself and he he didn't want to do that. And then he ended up telling the psychiatrist he was having you know feelings of depression about possibly being drafted and didn't tell the psychiatrist about it. Ended up writing in his journal, though, that it made him very angry at the psychiatrist and just at psychiatrists in general 
because he almost, you know, he almost uh, told them that. It just it created a lot of anger for him. So he and, was you know, angry at psychiatrists for something he didn't tell them? Yeah. It, and, you know, I mean, he did target, um, you know, some some psychiatrists later on. And that's possibly why. Kaczynski had a lot of anger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, clearly. But yeah, this, this is just, you know, kind of a rundown of all the the ways he's been troubled already, you know? I mean, yeah, it seems like he was a ticking time bomb at that by this point. Yeah, yeah. And also while he was at Michigan is when he started to develop his opinions that a technological society is very dangerous and it's it's just bad for humanity in general. Right. And he was kind of like is, a Luddite, right? Yeah, he was, um, you could call him maybe a, a primitivist, but it's not exactly what he was. Um, but yeah, he, um, he, he was very anti-technology and he was against the society that technology created. Was it, uh, was it just uh, technology or was it like industrialization as well? Well, yeah, it was industrialization as well. He felt that the industrial revolution had a, a very profound and terrible effect on you know, humanity in general. Was he um, was he anti-capitalist? In a sense, yes. Though it's really hard to say that because he did feel like people should struggle and work hard and succeed, you know, on their own. Yeah. See, I, I've read very little of his writings, but I remember thinking when I did that his political views didn't really seem to map on to to anything that would make sense to most people today. Like, certainly no, didn't was, ma- map on to, like, traditional right or left. No. Well, he seemed to have a lot of issues with the right and the left, yeah. honestly. And and later on, when you read his manifesto, you know, you can really see that. He, he, he talks about it in that. We'll get into that more when we talk about his manifesto, but he thought revolution was the only way. But, yeah, th- this is when he started having those feelings, was while he's in Michigan. Then he moves on to UC Berkeley. As I said, in 1967... He has his post as an acting assistant professor. And then in 68, he was actually promoted to assistant professor, even though, by all accounts, he was not a very good instructor. Um, the students did not like him. He, he refused to answer questions they had. He didn't interact with them very much, and he mostly just lectured straight from the textbook. I mean, he was so socially awkward. I, I mean, I can't imagine him being good at educating, you know? Uh, no, no matter how just, intelligent he is. Right. It's not something he was meant for. And then he, he resigned from Berkeley in 1969. And it sort of you know shocked the faculty because he was, he was on track for, for tenure, you know, but right. it just wasn't what he wanted. At this point, he was, he was ready to move off and live his, you know, sort of primitive lifestyle. This is when he, he becomes a hermit, basically, then? He didn't move off into the woods just yet. He, he resigned in 69, uh, and then he went and lived with his family in the Chicago area for two years. Uh, 1971 is actually when he moved out to Montana. He and his brother bought about uh, an acre of land, and then Kaczynski went and he built his 8 by 10 cabin out there. 8 by 10 8 by 10 which where he lived for like 20 years. I didn't realize it was that tiny. Yeah, it was 8 by 10. There was no electricity and no running water. So he was completely off the grid. Completely, yeah. He uh, 
he had to ride a bike into town if you wanted to do anything. It was it was very it was remote, but he he did have you know a few neighbors scattered around. Now you know people kind of wonder you know how did he, how do you make it without any money at all? But his family did send him money on a sort of semi regular basis, and I think he he did work some just sort of odd jobs for other people here and there just to make a little extra money as well. Uh, you know, to fund his bomb making habit, I guess. <laughs> did he um, did he hunt for his own food or fish that sort of thing? Like, did he, he live did. off he, the land? He, he did hunt. He did a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, he was he was really all about that hunting and gathering kind of lifestyle. That was what he kind of wanted society to go back to. Right. You know. Now, um, you know, we were talking about he he hated technology, he hated industry, but uh, by nineteen seventy five. He starts getting development around him there in Montana. And he, he could not have been thrilled by that. He was very unhappy about it. In fact, he starts uh, sabotaging and vandalizing some of the construction equipment. Well, you know, everybody needs a healthy outlet, I suppose. Yeah, it, he was, you know, he lashed out. It was just, he was very unhappy about this stuff. And um, there was one story about him that, uh, it was really, really strange. He, he told this story in an interview where some bikers drove by uh, one night close to his cabin and they're just making a ton of noise. And, and he hated that, you know, because he's all about the nature and the peace and everything. So he went to the, the house where these bikers were staying and he broke in and just trashed the place and um, defecated in the bathtub. Oh, dear Lord, that's vile. Yeah, really bad. So, yeah, it's lashing out he's upset you know he's just he's having even more trouble and that seems to go back to the whole how like underdeveloped emotionally he was he really was you know he had no social skills or self-control no like the the sort of things that you learn during you know typical socialization right how to get along with others i guess we get into this later but i think it's so strange that someone who has so few social skills judges society so harshly. It is a bit odd. Yeah. Now, um, Ted had not completely given up on, on living in society just yet though, because in 1978, he, he did move back to Chicago for just a little while. And he was working, um, for his brother at a, at a foam rubber plant. But it didn't last very long. His brother actually had to fire him because Ted had insulted a female coworker. When you say insulted, was it like a sexual harassment of some sort? Yeah, it, it was sexual harassment. Yeah, it, they, the two had had. You have different accounts of this depending on who you ask, but he was interested in her. Some say they had a little fling. She denies they were ever romantically involved. But apparently, you know, she sort of turned him down. And then he starts writing these sort of vile limericks about her and posting them ah. around the workplace. I mean, he doesn't strike me as the sort that would take rejection too well. No, not at all. He did not take that well at all. It is, his brother ended up having to fire him because his brother was a supervisor there. Okay. So at that point, you know, he moves back off to... Montana. Do we know how angry Ted was about that, or if at all? He was very angry at the time, yeah. Okay. Well, I think he was honestly more angry at 
the, the woman than his brother. Though, than but his brother. I know he was okay. he was angry at his brother for the firing, but he 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 knew it was coming when he kept doing that. So now this is when the bombings start. They start in 1978, and one thing I would like to talk about, you know, before we we start talking about the bombs, is just how he was building these bombs. He was going around to his neighbors and going through their garbage cans. And, you know, they had like junk cars sitting around and he would go through them and steal parts. He would use all that to build his bombs. So I think that maybe why the first ones were just a lot more crude because he was just using whatever he had laying around. He was building like basic pipe bombs, right? Yeah, they were they're basically like a, it, was, it was a pipe bomb inside of a wooden box most of the time. Okay. So, yeah, the, the first bomb. So just spare scrap parts from wherever you could find? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, now, the first bomb is in 1978, and it goes to Northwestern University. Uh, it's, it's found in a parking lot, uh, but it's, it's a package, you know, a, a package that was supposed to be mailed. And it has a return to sender on it, and it's the return address is for a professor named Buckley Christ. He's an engineering professor at Northwestern. Did uh, Ted know him? Did they have any sort of personal relationship? Uh, no, no. There's no personal relationship, but you know, he he's wanting to target technology, right? And an engineering professor is a good target, right? That, right. Um, also, he's he's pretty familiar with academia and how things work at universities, so that's probably an easier target for him. Yeah, that's now, a good point. Yeah. They think that he he meant to mail it and have it returned to sender, you know, but it was too big to fit in the mailbox. So he just leaves it in a parking lot and someone finds it. And this lady finds it. She sees that it says return to sender. It's got this professor's name on it. So she, she returns it to his office. Now, when the professor gets it, he thinks it's pretty weird that he's getting this return to sender because he didn't mail the package. Right. So he actually calls campus police about it. And the campus police officer is the one that opens it, and he's injured in the explosion. Uh, now, it's it's not deadly, and it doesn't really work you know, nearly as well as I'm sure it was intended to. It's just sort of minor burns and injuries. Wait, right? wait. Just, I'll just I want to clarify something real quick. So yeah. the professor sent the bomb, had the good sense to think it was suspicious enough to call the authorities. The authorities arrive... And just open the damn thing. Well, this was a like a campus security guard, right? Okay. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't Chicago PD, right? And he didn't think. I, mean, I don't think he thought it was a bomb. He just thought it was weird because I, he didn't send it, right? I mean, I think so. Campus security's not sending their best. Yeah. Well, um, you know, like moving on from that, like it, it was, it was just a very like a small explosion it didn't cause anything any major damage right right um the second bomb is in 1979 it also goes to northwestern and this was built inside of a cigar box Mm -hmm. and it was left on a a table on campus and it just sat there for a while and eventually it was opened by a grad student named john harris and again it causes just sort of minor injuries and you know like both these first bombs they just you know, these are his first attempts. Right, and they were flawed, and right? Very, you know, very flawed. They're crude, you know. That's, that's what the FBI calls them crude later on. Well, I mean, he's learning, right? He's learning, yeah. Now, the the third bomb, 
this is the one that you know it draws the attention of the FBI. Uh, he actually mails this third bomb, and it ends up on an airplane, uh, on American Air Flight 444. Now, this is a 727. It's got about 80 people on board. And what Kaczynski did is he, he, he made an altimeter from a, a barometer that, you know, would go in like a, a home weather station. Right. So it explodes uh, like when it gets to a specific altitude. Yeah. When it gets to a certain altitude. Uh, now it, it did detonate, but it didn't really explode. It just sort of like caught on fire and it caught some of the mail around it on fire. Uh, it did cause some, some damage to the plane. Uh, but there were no injuries other than just some smoke inhalation. But the, the altimeter worked, right? Yeah, well, the altimeter worked. Yeah, it, so his detonation device at least functioned. Yeah, it just it didn't have, uh, I guess, the explosive power that it was intended to have. When, they, when it was reviewed uh, by the FBI or whoever looked at it, um, do you know if, if they thought it would have been powerful enough to take down the plane had it done what uh, Ted intended it to do? Oh, yeah, I'm sure... Uh, they're sure that if, if it had done what he intended, it would have taken down the plane. But again, he just, he didn't have the experience at that point for the explosives, you know, to make it happen. Right. Uh, and, you know, of course the FBI is getting involved after, you know, this is on a, a plane, it's in the mail, everything, you know, this is a big federal case at this right. point. So they, they start to look for other bombs to see if they can see if this person has, has done this before. And they, they've heard about this, the bomb at Northwestern. Um, the first one. So they go and they inquire about that and they find out that there was another bomb a year later and the FBI gets all three of these bombs and starts to look at them and they can tell that these were built by the same person. Right. Um, you know, just because of, of similar ways, similar construction, they, they use wood, uh, the way that things are, are, you know, taped together and just, just the basic construction they can tell. Right. Yeah, of course. So they know they've, they've, they've got a serial bomber at this point. Uh, now, his fourth bomb is mailed in June of 1980, and it's sent to a man named Percy Wood, who is the president of United Airlines. And this was in a hollowed-out book that exploded when it was opened. Uh, now, now, Wood did have severe cuts and burns from this, but he, he did survive. He was, he was, it was okay afterward. I wouldn't say he's okay. He was injured, but he, he made it out. Okay. But Ted's clearly improving by this point. He, he is. He's, he's definitely getting better at this point because the bomb was significantly more powerful. Um, and again, they can tell by the construction. It's the same person. Right. So he, he basically, he has his own signature, right? Well, yes, but at, at, at this point, he actually starts leaving a literal signature on this bomb because oh, he starts, like his initials uh, or something. Well, the initials FC. Oh, oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we find out later that FC stands for Freedom Club. Yeah. But at the time, you know, at the time, it's basically just a big red herring for the FBI. Right, because they they were searching databases looking for people's initials, right? Yeah, they, they were. And basically, what it is is they they recover a small piece of metal uh, with the letters FC. It looks like they're just sort of like you know pressed in with a with a with a die mm -hmm. you know but uh yeah the, but going forward all of them have the fc in them somewhere so after this one i'm curious here so this is the second bombing that had to do with airplanes so did was this part of his attack on technology yeah it definitely seems to be because well it seems like in our you know 
industrial society, the airlines are very are very necessary. I mean, they're definitely you know, critical they're, for supply chains. Not just that, you know, people have to travel so much. It's they're a big part of society, right? Yeah, you're moving yeah, mail, enough. you're moving people, you're moving everything. So I, I think that's a that's a you know a legitimate uh, target for his you know war against technology. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. Now his his fifth bomb. Uh, is in October of 1981. Uh, a package is found in a hallway at the University of Utah. And, you know, someone just saw this package and they thought it was suspicious and they reported it to, to the police and it was able to be disarmed. Or perhaps it it was just a dud. Like, I've, I've read conflicting reports on that, but at any rate, it never exploded. And, you know, this is the first look they have at, you know, one of his bombs that, that did not explode. So they see the full construction of it. They can study it a little bit more. Right. You know, understand more about how he's building them. The next bomb is in 1982, and it's sent to a professor at Vanderbilt. However, that particular professor was on vacation at the time, and his assistant opened the package. And she received uh, severe burns, and she was injured from the shrapnel, but she survived as well. So he still hasn't actually killed anyone yet. No, no, he, this is uh, this is his sixth bomb, and it has not killed anyone yet. Uh, two months later, he there is another bomb, and this goes to a professor at UC Berkeley named Diogenes Angelicos. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Okay. Uh, he he found a package uh, in the floor of the computer department's break room, and th- it actually nearly killed him. It it blew off some of his fingers. He was hospitalized for quite a while, but he did survive as well. So was this explosion significantly more powerful than the the previous ones? Yeah. Well, well, both of these uh, the the two in 1982 were both. Pretty similar, but they were definitely more powerful than the previous ones. Uh, and, and, you know, later on, when they, they find his journals, they find out that he is actually getting frustrated that he hasn't managed to kill anyone yet. Ah. And at this point, he actually takes a break until 1985. There are no more bombs until 1985. And he, he would write in his journals that during this time, he was trying to learn to make more powerful bombs. Was he was he afraid that he was uh, that the authorities were catching on to him, or, or was it just that he was studying bomb making? No, he was he was just trying to to make more powerful bombs, according to his journals. Okay. Now he starts back in 1985, and this one goes to UC Berkeley as well. A uh, a grad student named John Hauser uh, picked up a binder that was sitting on the floor. And it exploded and blew off uh, four of his fingers and blinded him in one eye. And he, he survived, but it was it was really tragic for him because he had actually just been accepted into the astronaut program. Oh, that is heartbreaking. That's, and obviously, that's the know, end of a dream right there. Yeah, he, he never even flew again. I mean, you have to have perfect vision to fly. Yeah, you, you would never be, accept, be able to be an astronaut at that point. So, no, you I mean you have to be in like peak physical condition for that sort of thing. Uh, then we have another one in 1985, uh, and this is a package that was mailed to Boeing's Auburn, Washington office. 
Now, this package was just addressed to the company, Boeing, and it wasn't addressed to a specific person. So when, when the mailroom got it, they thought that was suspicious. A little but odd, then yeah. The, the package also seems to be sort of padded on the outside, and there's a lot of extra postage on it. So, you know, this employee's kind of suspicious, so he, he turns it in uh, to his supervisors. They contact the police, police x-ray it, and they, you know, they see there's a pipe bomb inside. So we have another one that's been discovered. Fully intact. Fully intact and does not go off. Now, is part of the suspicion at this point about these packages, I mean, is Kaczynski uh, the cause of that in large part? Just the, yeah, I mean, the fear surrounding packages exploding? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely news at this point that, you know, we have a serial bomber. And um, people are aware of it. People are looking for strange packages at this point. Fear has sort of gripped the nation. Right. Now, the, this 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 bomb though at Boeing, the the FBI said that if it had gone off, it likely would have killed whoever opened it. It seemed to be powerful enough for that. Okay. So he's he's getting more sophisticated, right? Uh, you have another one in 1985 in November. A uh, a professor named James McConnell at the University of Michigan receives a bomb, and this one. Uh, actually severely injures his assistant because he handed it off to his assistant to open up and the assistant opened it. It it injured the assistant very badly. It blew out Professor McConnell's hearing. Again, though, not deadly. But in December of 1985, we have our first death. A man named Hugh Scrutton owns a computer store in Sacramento. And he finds this sort of strange block of wood sitting in a bag in the parking lot of his store. So, you know, obviously he's just going to pick it up and get rid of it out of the parking lot, right? Seems about right, yeah. Well, when he picks it up, it, it killed him instantly. Oh. Now, it, it should be noted that Scrutton was a student at UC Berkeley while Kaczynski was a faculty member there. But we don't know if there was ever just any real connection. Okay. It may have just been coincidence, but I feel like it's important to 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 mention that because Kaczynski may have remembered him for some reason, may have held some kind of grudge, but right. we don't have any kind of proof of that. Though. I mean, how could he have known he'd be the one to pick it up if he just set it out there? Yeah, it, it, well, he knew that he owned the store, perhaps. So right? it's been a long time since I've seen the documentary or the, the one of the few documentaries I've watched on this, but isn't this the case where that terrifying uh, sketch photo comes from? Actually, no. Um, the next, well, a, a little over a year later, there's a very, very similar bombing, and that's the one that it comes from. Actually. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so that was in December of 85. Uh, in February of 87, it's a little over a year later, uh, another computer store is targeted. Uh, this one is in Salt Lake City. And the owner, a man named Gary Wright, finds a strange wooden box in the parking lot. Oh, okay. So uh, very now, similar. Yeah, he, he picks it up, and he's he's severely injured by the blast, but, but he survives it. However, this time, a secretary had actually witnessed a man place this wooden box in the parking lot. And, you know, he was wearing the, the gray-headed sweatshirt, the aviator sunglasses, so she's able to describe him to the authorities and they make that composite sketch. Now, that sketch, 
I mean, you know, we remember it. It it's all over the place. Now, I mean, it's iconic. Right? Everyone has seen this sketch immediately. I, like, as soon as when it's I made. think of the Unabomber, that picture comes to my mind rather than Ted Kaczynski's face. Yeah, because that that is that's the Unabomber. That's the Unabomber everyone knew, right? Yeah. And Kaczynski, you know, this scared him that he was seen because he stops for six years at this point. Now, the FBI think that, you know, they think he's he's probably been arrested on something else or he's dead at this point because he, he stopped for so long. Right. Right. Because, you know, like a serial killer. They don't usually stop. They don't stop. But Kaczynski did. He stopped for six years. And they're and, usually career criminals, too, so it makes sense that if they do stop, it's likely because they're in prison. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Right. That just wasn't the case with Kaczynski. Cause it, it, I mean, you didn't, at least you didn't cover uh, crimes he committed. Did, did he have a criminal record before this? No. Okay. No, not that we know of. Now, he was... So he really was an anomaly in a lot of different ways. He was. I, I can't say that he wasn't like... People tried to tie him to other crimes, but I, I think that's... You mean like the Zodiac him. rumor? Yeah, no, that the Zodiac and a lot of people like thought that he may have committed the Tylenol murders as well. Really? But, yeah, I don't... Didn't they catch the Tylenol murder person? Nope. They never. They had some suspects, but they never figured out exactly who it was. Okay, I must be thinking about a different incident then. Okay. Yeah, and well, you know, in the the top, I, I don't want to get off subject, but the Tylenol murders were in Chicago as well. Which he was he was from Chicago. Okay. But I I don't I don't think that he, I don't think he was involved in those either. Um, but again, he, he had a six year break here, uh, but he starts back in 1993. Now, 1993, uh, you know, was the year when the World Trade Center was bombed. Yeah. And you know, some people think that may have sort of spurred him back into action. Gotcha. When that happened. Kaczynski's first bomb after his uh, six-year break there came in June of 1993. And it went to a geneticist named Charles Epstein, who worked uh, at the University of San Francisco. He received a, uh, a padded envelope at his home and with a bomb inside. And you know, when he opened it, it exploded. He was severely injured. But again, this one was not deadly. Two days later, a, uh, a professor from Yale University named David Gellernter received an almost identical bomb. Uh, he was also seriously injured, but did not die. And uh, Gellernter was a computer science professor. Now, just after, I think the next day after the Gellinger bomb, uh, the New York Times receives a letter from Kaczynski. And Kaczynski is claiming to be, you know, an anarchist group called Freedom Club. You know, this is the first time we find out what FC stands for. Right, yeah. He, he claims those bombings and he, he says, you know, there will be future communication, basically, in the letter. The next bomb is in December of 1994. And this goes to a man named Thomas Mosser. Uh, Mosser is an advertising executive from a New York firm uh, called Burson Marsteller. And uh, he, he got a bomb in the mail. And this one was very powerful. It actually decapitated him instantly when he opened it. Oh, okay. Now, um, later on, uh, Kaczynski would write that 
he targeted Mosser because he was instrumental in repairing the image of Exxon after the uh, Valdez oil spill. Was that true? Well... I mean, not that it would justify murdering, of course. I'm not saying it would justify it. I, I will say that Mosser was an advertising executive that worked with Exxon. I'm not sure how instrumental he was in in, in repairing their image. Right. But he, he definitely helped with it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Now, as I said, this one was very powerful. And then... The last bomb that Kaczynski sent was on April 24th of 1995. Uh, this was actually just five days after the, the Oklahoma City bombing. And this went to the uh, president of the California Forestry Association. He was a man named Gilbert Murray. And actually, this, uh, this package was addressed to the former president. Uh, but Murray opened it, you know, because you know, he's the, the current president. And he was killed instantly. And um, this bomb was apparently so powerful that there wasn't, there was hardly anything left to even bury of him. Oh. So Kaczynski had become very, very good at making bombs at this time, even though this was his last bomb. Now, after the Murray bomb is when the New York Times, they, they get another Freedom Club letter. And this is the letter where he tells them that he has this 37,000-word document that he wants to be published. He says that if, if this is published in, in a major publication, he's going to stop sending bombs out. However, if it's not, he threatens that he's going to bring down an airliner. And, you know, obviously, he's already targeted a plane at one point. Right, I mean, th they would definitely have reason to consider that plausible. Yeah, obviously. But, you know, none of the, the major newspapers, they don't want to publish this. I mean, of course. You, I mean, you don't want to platform some psychopath who's trying to force his manifesto onto your newspaper. But You also FBI, don't want people to get blown up, right? So. Well, you don't. But the, well, the FBI wants them to publish it, though. For one, you know, they don't want any more bombings. They don't want a plane to be brought down. But they're also hoping that if this is published, someone's going to recognize the writing. They're going to recognize the phrasing, the beliefs, something like that. I mean, it makes sense, too. I mean, because anybody who would write, I mean, how many words did you say it was? Like 30-something thousand? 37,000. Okay. Anybody who would write that much has probably talked about those same things at and great Kaczynski length. had. Yeah. Yeah. Kaczynski definitely had. Now, I just want to touch on a bit, like, what was in this manifesto. And you know, I, I wanted to get back to Kaczynski's beliefs here. This is basically just an, a, an attack. I don't want to say even an attack. It's just a, a very harsh criticism on our industrialized society. Uh, in fact, the title of this manifesto, as we call it, is Industrial Society and Its Future. Kaczynski never called this a manifesto, by the way. And your know, manifesto, I guess it has a lot of negative, negative connotations. connotations. Yeah, quite possibly from this mostly, but um, he he felt like the the technological society was, I guess you could say, enslaving the people. Uh, like we don't have an opportunity to make our own choices anymore. God, and he never even saw Twitter. 
He did not see Twitter. And like I'll be honest. shit right there, dude. Yeah, I'll be honest. He, he, he would have... I think Twitter is really fulfilling some of his, you know, what he was yeah. saying there is. I mean, oh, social media in general. I mean, like an entire, like an entire generation of people who stare at their phones more than more than they do other human beings. Yeah, and these are things that he calls surrogate activities because he feels like our our day to day lives we don't have anything that gives that makes us feel meaning in what we do. He refers to this thing called the power process that you're supposed to go through by going through difficult situations to attain goals. And it's just not something that, that we're doing as much anymore. Uh, there's uh, a, a term for that. Uh, I don't remember who wrote about it. I think it's called anti-fragility. Right. Uh, yeah. where the more hardships you face, the, the, the easier it becomes in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now Kaczynski feels like you should face hardships. Uh, because it makes you feel, it makes you feel like you've achieved a greater goal, right? Um, however, you know he's arguing also that the technological society is just putting a ton of of pressure on individuals. Uh, that that in the past, you know, when a society does this, there would be a revolution, but in this technological society, it has ways of, I guess. I guess I, the best way to put it is to soothe us. You know, we've got entertainment, we've got right. medications to, to, you know, to calm us down, to make us feel better. Stuff like that. It's, it's yeah. sort of, yeah, you know, like that kind of thing. And he has, he makes good points. Um, I'm not going to say that I completely agree with them, but you read the manifesto and it, it does make sense in its own way. Right. I mean, we have to be able to separate the views from the person. Right. And there are so many people that have come out and said, you know, I think, you know, I think he's dead on with this. Now, I'm not going to say I think he's dead on with it, but I think he he foresaw a lot of problems that are arising now. Now, we should probably be absolutely clear. and I mean, this is probably obvious, but just to just to be crystal clear. Even saying that he had some points at times in his writings is in no way an endorsement of the violence he committed. No, I, I don't mean to say that at all. No, I, I'm, I'm just, not uh, even suggesting you are. I just wanted yeah. to, to be very specific about that. I do feel, I'm just saying that this man was brilliant and he did foresee real problems. However, his, you know, methods of attaining it, right? I, We're just unconscionable. This terrible, terrible, and the the fear he created, right? And obviously, this man was. I mean, was there anyone in the, in that time period that created the kind of of terror that he did? No, I can't think of anyone that that did that. I, I'm not sure that anything else in the history of this country up until 9/11 created now, that. I will say this: that maybe localized. There were other serial killers who may have caused more terror. Um, I mean, the Zodiac, for example, in California, right. uh, Ted Bundy. Um, but not on a national level. But not on a national scale. No, he he did that um, exceptionally well. He, he, he made people terrified to open the mail. You know, my family, like, we had no reason to be afraid of that. But I remember, like, like my grandmother... 
talking about, you know, being worried about if packages come in or something, you know? Right. I, I remember that. It's it was it's terrible that just your average person was worried about it. I mean, yeah, and he took this innocuous thing, just opening a package, something that we take for granted, mm-hmm. something that simple, and made people afraid of it. Yeah, Amazon would just completely go to business if that happened. Again. Yeah, no question. Uh, moving forward, in September, the New York Times and the Washington Post both published the manifesto. Now. We discussed Ted's brother, David, earlier. Um, David's wife, Linda, is reading about the Unabomber. And she thinks, you know, this could be, this could be Ted. This could be David's brother, Ted. And now Linda has never actually met Ted, but she doesn't like him. (laughs) And with good cause, because when David uh, was getting married, Ted was very upset about it. He didn't want him to marry Linda. He didn't want him to have anything to do with Linda. And I'm guessing that had quite a bit to do with the fact that Ted had no social skills and right. was unable to, you know, to find a partner of his own, maybe. Yeah. And he didn't want his brother to move on and do something like that. But, you know, like I said, Linda... She knew quite a bit about Ted, though, because she's heard David and his mother discuss Ted and all his problems. But she says to David, you know, I think that this could possibly be your brother. And David's like, no, there's no way Ted's the Unabomber, right? But they they read the manifesto. And once David reads that, he thinks there could be something to this because, you know, Ted has written letters and communicated to him a lot of these these, uh, same beliefs that are in this manifesto. Right. I mean, again, anybody that feels that strongly about something has almost certainly spoken about it before. Right. And uh, David has. And his a lot brother of was old... basically like his only friend for like a decade, right? He, yeah, pretty much. He, he really only had contact with, with his, his brother and his mother. Okay. And it, David has a lot of the letters and stuff that he's sent to both of them. And he, he's going through this stuff and he actually finds uh, a document that Ted had written that seems like it's just a, a precursor to this manifesto, like a, a shorter version of it. Oh. And at this point, he's like, yeah, I, I need to contact the FBI. Now, people expect that, you know, as soon as the FBI gets this tip, they can they can go arrest him, right? But that's, that's not how this works in this situation because they're getting tips everywhere. You know, they, they're asking people. If this if this manifesto rings a bell for you, we need to know about it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no telling how many tips they got. They had thousands, actively, yeah. thousands. They they there were thousands that they just looked at and discarded, and there were over two thousand that they thought were actual possible suspects. So you know they have to go through all two thousand of these people. They have to look at you know the evidence and whatnot. So it takes them a while to even come to Ted Kaczynski. And even after you land on Kaczynski, I mean, to to get a warrant, I mean, you have to do things by the book, right? Just because if you go raid his house uh, half-cocked, this can all be thrown out in court. Exactly. And they end up getting the warrant based on linguistics. Uh, Just the the language in these writing samples that David provided uh, compared to the manifesto that was sent into the New York Times. And they do get the warrant. That seems uh, like that's kind of on shaky ground, to be honest with you. 
Well, it, we, I mean, we'll I'm get sure to it that. was valid. I mean, obviously, in hindsight, we know that it was right. It, it, we, we'll, but we'll I would get probably to want it. something more solid if I were the one uh, trying to get the warrant. Yeah, that there that was called into question though later on. However, uh, the FBI that they have to go with what they have, and they're trying to build more of a case. They want to be completely ready, but the news networks, you know, get a get a whiff of it. Right. Uh, and they're wanting to break the story, but they can't break the story when the FBI hasn't even gone to arrest the guy yet. They, they can't have him destroy everything in the cabin. Wait, was it, was Kaczynski's name leaked? Yes. As far as I can tell, it seems like CBS and even the, some of the other networks from the interviews I, I, I heard had the information that, at least this guy in the Montana woods. I'm not sure if it's his actual name. Oh, I hope somebody got fired over that. But it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter because if he hears, oh, it's someone up in the Montana woods, he knows they're onto him. You're right. He burns the place to the ground. Yeah. Because right. like, so, if I remember correctly, what ninety percent of their case were based was based on things they found in his cabin, right? More than I would say, more than ninety percent. It was, there was, well, let's, let's move on. They, okay. they finally do arrest him April 3rd of 1996. Okay. And. Did he go peacefully? I, I don't remember. I would, I wouldn't say exactly peacefully. I mean, they kind of, they went up to the door and they start to talk to him and then they just reach in and grab him and, you know. Oh, okay. And, you know, cuff him. He didn't really have a choice there. But then they start going through the cabin. And there is so much evidence in the cabin. They find 40,000 pages of writing. Uh, he, he talks about his bomb making processes in it. He talks about the people he targeted, why he targeted them. Uh, you know, all this information, his journals about like, that's where we find out about him thinking about the sex change, things like that. Oh, okay. I mean, all these writings and quite a bit of it. I, I cannot say that every bit of it, but a lot of it was written in in code in a cipher, and they had to find the they found the key to unlock it in another document. They were they were able to do that. I've never heard but, that. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, I don't think all of it was, but I know quite a bit of it was. Uh, but not just these the details bomb making process. Um, they find bomb making materials. They find the typewriter he used to write out his letters. And his uh, thirty-seven thousand word manifesto, and they even find a completed bomb that is ready to be sent out inside the cabin. Yeah, you know, I probably should ask this earlier. Do we know where he learned to make bombs? I mean, it he wasn't had, exactly like he had Google at the time. I mean, not that you should ever Google that. I mean, that's a good way to oh. to get on a damn list somewhere that you don't want to be on. But right, and and that's one of the reasons I have not tried to provide more information in the podcast about, about how he made it. the bombs because that, that's that not could probably be considered a little irresponsible even if yeah, you did know. Not something I want but you to for the record. And yeah. I nor anyone I know has any knowledge of bomb making. No, well, he uh, had a lot of chemistry textbooks, actually, in his cabin, and that's where he was learning about explosives and stuff. Ah, okay. Really, there weren't so books he just on designed explosives. them from, yeah. Yeah, just, just from chemistry. It's like yeah, he, he didn't have, like, a copy of the Anarchist Handbook. I don't, I don't even know when that thing was written. No, he, he didn't. Um, or if he did, they didn't find that, or if they did find it, I don't know about it. It's not something that was listed. 
But yeah, they, they find every bit of evidence they need. Now, we were mentioning the search warrant earlier. When this goes to trial, Kaczynski actually does try to have that search warrant thrown out because... I mean, you know, it makes ling- sense. Any competent defense attorney would have to go after that. You know, linguistics seems a bit subjective at best. Yeah, of course. But you know, the judge disagrees with it. Obviously, the judge is not going to let them throw that warrant out. I mean, just to be clear, when we say subjective, that doesn't doesn't mean that we don't think it's valid. No, no, I, I don't. I don't think it's. I don't. Th- I think it's very valid, but it's 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 a little flimsy for a warrant, right? Right. It's not the same thing as hard evidence. No, but when you when you ha- you get the warrant and you find the kind of evidence they found, you you can't let that go, right? Yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know, fruit of the poisonous tree. If you make any mistake, that it can all go. So, right, so they I, they have to be very careful uh, when no, they're getting I, warrants. Yeah, that that's very true. You can you can ruin an entire case, even one that would otherwise be open and shut. But, as I said, the judge doesn't let them throw out the warrant. Thank God. Now, Kaczynski's lawyers are trying to pursue a mental illness angle. And Kaczynski is very angry about that. That's the last thing he wants, because he doesn't want his I mean, he's basically an activist, right? Or that's how he considers himself. Yeah, he feels like it's going to invalidate all of... His work, as he puts it, but I mean, I don't want to call it his work, all the bombing, but but that's how he would have seen it, right? Yeah, I mean, that is he, how he, saw he it. wouldn't he would have thought that probably la- labeling himself as mentally ill would invalidate his message. Yeah, exactly. Like he probably he, saw himself as like a prophet, right? Yeah, and that's the last thing he wanted. So he actually tried to have he tried to have his lawyers replaced, but the the judge wouldn't allow that either. Were they uh, court appointed? I mean, with. With his yeah, income I, I, being practically zero at the time, I mean, I can't imagine he could have hired his own attorney. Oh yeah, they were they were court appointed. He had no money, right, to to hire lawyers. Um, now the the judge ended up he didn't let him uh, replace them. He he did force him to go through an evaluation of his mental health, and. But that's just they to see found, if he's competent to stand trial, right? Yeah, well, they found that he was competent to stand trial, but they also said that he was a paranoid schizophrenic. Now, I'm not sure that his actions line up with schizophrenia. Yeah, that. I would. They, I, mean, I would say they line up with antisocial personality, of course. Disorder. But schizophrenia. Yeah, and I. I don't know. I can't say that I agree with that. I mean, he didn't seem delusional, did he? I mean, like crazy, sure. I mean, violent, absolutely, but but not not delusional. But not no, delusional. I, I mean, maybe maybe a bit delusional in like his role in things, but nothing. Now, it like, could be that I just don't really have a firm understanding of what schizophrenia is, right? Um, but from my knowledge of schizophrenia, which admittedly not not very much, it doesn't really sound like that diagnosis fits him very well. I, I I agree, but I, I really don't want to get into it too much because he he was he was found to be competent to stand trial. Hey, they almost always are. Yeah. Now his his brother was was fighting for him. He did not want Teddy at the death penalty, and his brother he was he was dealing with a lot of guilt for turning him in as well. You know. Yeah. I mean, I I, I can imagine, but he didn't doubt at this point that Ted was the bomber, right? No, I, I think he was pretty sure of it. Now, 
uh, Ted's mother uh, still doubts that he was the Unabomber. But has Ted never admitted to it? Well, he he pled guilty, but I think his I think the mother was just sort of like you know didn't want to admit it. But he he ended up having to make a plea deal basically to to keep the death penalty off the table, and uh, he was sentenced to four life sentences plus thirty years. Were those and he was uh, ordered, concurrent or what? Uh. Well, and yeah, I'm I mean, sure not that it matters at yeah, that kind of time. They're, they're never going to let him out of there. So yeah. like, uh, and then uh, he was also ordered to pay fifteen million dollars in restitution to the victims. I'm sure that got paid in a hurry. But you know, he he had no money at all. Uh, I mean, but, what, um, what was his what were his assets worth? I mean, I, I don't oh I don't know what the bond market's like, and his house was like the size of my garage. So yeah, a little eight by ten shack. Actually, um, actually, my garage is bigger than his house. Just, yeah. Actually, yeah, by I a think, considerable margin. I think my tool shed is nearly as big as his house, honestly. Yeah. Not quite as big, but yeah, close to. Now, um, I, I've got to tell a story about that $15 million in restitution uh, because when we first discussed this case, and I, I knew he was ordered to pay that, and I made this comment that, like, they could just auction off all the stuff they found in the cabin to pay off some of that. Right? And I mentioned how absurd that was. And then I start looking into it and they did exactly that in 2011. So yeah, the um, jokes the, on me, I suppose, but I look, I stand by it. That is still absurd. Whether they did it or not. Well, they did it. And the, they made 190,000 of oh the auction to, to go toward the, you know, it all went toward, restitution for the victims but the 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 hoodie and the sunglasses went for like twenty thousand dollars i mean i i don't even know what to think about that on the one hand yeah the money went went to restitution for the victims that's great but on the other hand what weirdo buys this shit collectors very intrigued by serial killers intrigued that you're being awfully damn charitable here, buddy. Okay, there are a lot of people that really get into this stuff. I mean, how many people... You mean you there know, are weirdos with sick obsessions with people who kill other people? Yeah, they, they have I think that's what you're trying to say, Dan. They have women that are interested in them, and there are people that buy their belongings. I have never understood the whole groupie thing. Well, you know what? Maybe maybe museums were buying this stuff. I, I mean, don't that, that would definitely... That my view of humanity, but I I the, doubt that's the case. To be honest, the with you. the the buyers were were kept to be confidential, though no one knows who they were, so we don't know. Oh, okay, I, I do know that the the so cabin, we'll just pretend it was the Smithsonian then. No, maybe. Well, the cabin was uh, did become part of a museum exhibit for a while. Uh, I, I don't I don't think they actually bought the cabin. I think that was you know loaned out or whatever. But it, it became part of a museum exhibit. So maybe these other things are in museums as well. I'd I like to believe are. that. Maybe. Um, but but yeah, that's um, and that's what happened with Kaczynski. Obviously, the rest of the fifteen million, it's it's never going to be paid. But it, it was ordered, you know. So just in case, I guess he does make money from something. It'll it'll go toward the victims. Right. But you know that's that's pretty much what happened with the case. Something I find really strange about all this is how Kaczynski was always just 
I guess you could say unsocialized, but he did not have social skills at all, right? I mean, how could he? I mean, but, at what point in his life did he have peers that were near his own age? So much of, like, normal socialization that kids go through, he just missed. He did. He did miss it, right? But I feel like he knew how his actions were going to affect society, though. He, he knew how people were going to react to it. I mean, I think that's clear from his writings, right? Yeah, obviously, right? And he's so judgmental of society, even though he was never able to take part in it. I don't know. I, I find that strange. You know, uh, maybe it's not strange. Maybe it's a it's a actually maybe it makes perfect sense that he would be more like, more inclined to critique society because he never really got to to be a part of it. He was an outsider. Yeah, though. You know, with that, with him being such an outsider, I, I do feel like a lot of what he thought was going to happen when he wrote his manifesto has happened. So, I mean, he understands people and how people are. He was just, but he was never able to talk to people. It seems like if you have that knowledge, it would be easier for you to to socialize, to interact with people, right? Like, you would have to be this complete outsider if you understand people that way. I mean, I think there's a big difference between predicting like broad scale social trends and being able to interact with people on interpersonal levels, right? I mean, just because you can do the former does not mean you can do the latter. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's otherwise a, we probably wouldn't have philosophers. That's a good point. That's 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 very fair. And you, know, even though he's dealing with mental illness, he's still he was competent. I mean, the man was competent. He knew he knew what he was doing to these people. Do you think, after looking into the case, do you think his goal, like, do you think killing people was an immediate goal for him? Was it enough for him just to scare people and get his message out, or did he really have a need or desire to, to harm people? Well, he, he definitely had a desire to harm people. Uh, going back through his journals, like, he, he'd had desires to, to harm other people that he, like, came across that annoyed him. You know, oh, that, you know, and you mentioned earlier that he said that, uh, yeah, or I he, think you said that he was upset that his bombs hadn't killed anyone yet. Yeah, he was frustrated he hadn't killed right. anyone yet. Uh, he he laid out that he had goals to to kill, you know, people that were that were you know, uh, you know, important to technology, you know, CEOs stuff like that. Um, and you know, like I said, he he said at one point he wanted to kill a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist rather. So there was an element of like personal grudge to this as well then. No, oh, yeah, you, you can't say there wasn't. He, there was definitely personal grudge involved in the things he did. That's how he did select targets based on, you know, their 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 place in the industrial technological society, but he was also picking them based on his his biases and, you know, things he he had a grudge against. I mean, otherwise, what he he kept sending stuff to UC Berkeley, where he was a faculty member, right? Right, right, yeah. You know, I, I feel like that had a lot to do with his own his own you know agenda that wasn't necessarily a part of the the anti technology bent, yeah, yeah, to to cause it, it, it makes sense. He actually told his brother at one point that anyone that's really smart, that's really very intelligent, has a sadistic streak. Like he said that to his brother. So, I mean, you know that he had one as well. Right. Because he that, saw himself as that super intelligent person. Yeah, of course. So, and he, he, he was aware of that in himself. But he, he definitely, like, yeah, he, he wanted to kill. In the modern day, 
The image of Kaczynski in his tiny cabin may have become a meme, but the fear and anguish he caused were real. He was an idealist that was willing to go to any lengths. He was also clearly mentally ill and had gone through a great deal of trauma. This is a common theme in many of the cases we've examined. It's obviously no excuse for his actions. And in fact, one could argue that with an intellect like Kaczynski's, he was even more competent to understand the ramifications of his actions. And perhaps he did. He may have only killed three, but the Unabomber was one of the most dangerous murderers the country has ever faced. Thank you for listening to Fact and Suspicion. We hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to suggest a case for us to cover in the future, we'd love for you to contact us. You can reach us through Twitter at AndSuspicion, or through Gmail, factandsuspicion at gmail.com.